Okay, today my guest is Professor Fiona Moore. I'll keep my introduction short to maximize our time with her. In the next 30 minutes or so, we'll talk about Fiona as a person. Professor Moore is a thought leader and an esteemed scholar, and finally as a mentor to many PhD students and junior faculty. For the sake of time, I'll skip many of her accomplishments and give you a very quick snapshot. Professor Moore's research is on international human resource management, cross-cultural management, gender and ethnic diversity in MNCs, anthropology and its applications in business studies, German, Korean, and Taiwanese business cultures. She has served or serves as an editor at Cross-Cultural and Strategic Management Journal, Global Networks Journal, JIBS, Critical Perspectives on International Business Journal, and the Ragnit Review. She received the AIB Insights uh, 20th Anniversary Award in 2021. She was nominated for the Haynes Prize for Most Promising Young Scholar in 2006 and 2010, and she was the first runner-up at uh, Woman in AIB, Best Paper Award in 2008. Thank you, Fiona, for joining us. Oh, thank you for asking me. Fiona, uh, what did you want to become when you were a child? Well, it depends on uh, when, when I was a child. Uh, my first ambition at the age of five uh, uh, was to be an astronaut. Um, but um, I uh, grew rethought that one when I uh, remember I watched an episode of the Six Million Dollar Man and, uh, you know, he uh, got quite badly hurt. And I thought, I don't think I want to be an astronaut if that's what happens to astronauts. So, um, yeah, later on, I thought maybe I'd be a teacher. And then when I uh, found out about anthropology as a uh, subject, um, I uh, got interested in that. But uh, until I went to university, I thought I was thinking more of psychology because uh, most of uh, my uh, most of my family are in the medical profession and uh, a lot of my mother's family are psychologists. But once I got to university, I really got cemented uh, into the anthropology mold. And, uh, you know, so uh, uh, that's uh, that's where I went after that. Um, I often describe myself as, uh, you know, an anthropologist who uh, wandered into a business school 20 years ago and stayed <laughs> because they keep feeding her. Um, but yeah, I'm still an anthropologist, but uh, now I'm an anthropologist with a uh, business and HRM focus. Perfect. And where, where did you grow up? Um, I grew up in Toronto in Canada, Okay, which is and, quite a nice place to grow up, really. Yeah. And... Uh... Can you remember the earliest moments of uh, awareness between foreign versus uh, domestic? Well, I can and I can't um, because uh, because of uh, growing up in Toronto um, in the 70s, and I suspect it's much the same now, um, there were... Um, I could think uh, almost every uh, everybody I knew had an immigrant parent and or grandparent. You know, my father was an immigrant. Most of the uh, children I went to school with were the same. Um, the ones whose parents, uh, whose families went further back were, uh, you know, there, but they were unusual. And uh, even then, you know, even people, you know, both of whose parents were had been born in Canada usually had a grandparent at the very least. So, um, you know, I was kind of always aware that there was some place, that there were places other than Canada, because that was where your parents came from. <laughs> Um, but, uh, you know, um, in terms of, uh, you know, 
foreign versus domestic, well, you know, that's a slightly different, uh, you know, the more, more complex uh, issue, you know, um, eventually sort of, uh, uh, you know, you, you go to school, you learn about places overseas and you start to kind of, uh, things start to fall into place. So yeah, you know, the place my father's from is uh, uh, England and, uh, you know, that it's got this history and uh, other people's families are from India and that's also got this history and you start to build it up. Uh, you mentioned anthropology. Uh, how did you get into that uh, area for, for it is for interest? And then how did it yeah. lead to IV? Well, I, again, I knew anthropology was a thing from um, quite early age because uh, uh, both my mother and my grandmother had studied it, even though they didn't uh, go into it professionally. And uh, um, um, my my grandfather's uh, my grandmother's professor actually the anthropology professor had uh, uh, overseen uh, the uh, establishment of a uh, a totem pole in the Royal Ontario Museum and if you go to today you can still see that totem pole that she said at the time he was uh, constantly fretting about whether uh, he'd measured it just right or whether what I wanted to be too large <laughs> um, so yeah colonial past okay yeah but. Um, so um, I was aware of it and also um, aware, you know, that it's it's a discipline. It's got its uh, discipline done by uh, people and uh, that it generally involves uh, studying uh, people for, who aren't in your group. Now, um, traditional anthropology, of course, uh, you know, involves uh, is as I said, you know, a little bit of a colonialist overtone, uh, you know, you study, uh, you go from uh, your, uh, you know, you go from the center and you go out to the periphery and you study tribal people or peasant societies, and uh, then you go back home to your university and you write about them. But even then, because uh, of my uh, mother and grandmother studying it, I knew there was uh, differences there. For instance, they had copies of the children of Sanchez and, uh, you know, the uh, Newtown studies and the like. So I knew that urban anthropology was a thing. And um, by the time I was in university, um, there was quite a lot of attention uh, being given to Japan, you know, which had started off as a um, traditional anthropological subject. People... Uh, um, in the 19th and early 20th century, uh, going from Europe and uh, North America to study what was at the time a uh, uh, fairly uh, developing society, low technology, peasants, feudal. And then suddenly, of course, you know, all that reversed. And uh, so uh, the anthropology of Japan uniquely wound up with uh, a huge canon of studies of businesses and corporations of all sizes. So I uh, thought, yeah, you know, that's very interesting. And I think I'd like to study that because clearly that's something different. And then by the time I was looking for, uh, uh, th thinking about graduate school and thinking about things that could be studied, um, it was the, uh, the turn of the millennium and the um, uh, post-colonial and anti-colonial movements um, were uh, in full swing in anthropology. Uh, people were starting to ask very, pointed questions and uh, one of the main ones being, you know, uh, well, you know, aren't we just going from the center to the periphery and what gives us the right to do that? And anthropologists would generally reply that, no, 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 it's true that in the past, you know, we've gone to from Europe to Africa or South America and studied 
people in um, villages or uh, tribe uh, and you now ethnic groups and uh, and uh, but the uh, the insights we gained from that are insights that we could um, apply to uh, businesses and corporations and governments and the um, critical uh, movement said prove it and so you had quite a lot of young people like myself saying you know challenge accepted so um, I decided that uh, I would study, uh, first of all, I would study Germans because, um, you know, you can't get, get much more uh, uh, periphery to the center than studying uh, Germans. Plus, I studied German and had lived in Germany. So, uh, you know, uh, it wouldn't be too much of a stretch to uh, go, uh, go from there and to build the contacts. And I also wanted to study Germans in the city of London because uh, it seemed to me that, uh, you know, if you want, again, to study up, if you want to study uh, uh, the uh, people at the center, then you study uh, the people doing transnational business. And so I did and found that, uh, in a way, the city of London is also a village, you know, with its uh, own little tribes and its own little customs and, uh, you know, its own strangenesses. And I had a very good time doing it. And after that, uh, on the strength of that, I got offered a postdoc uh, place by uh, uh, Mari Sacco, who, uh, is, you know, is uh, usually quite keen to work with qualitative researchers. And so, uh, you know, uh, so, since I'd gotten to know her uh, uh, through uh, university activities, she uh, suggested I uh, come to the Saeed Business School and uh, spend a year with her. And that kind of launched me off into, uh, into business schools from there. Perfect. Uh, something that is not on your CV that people might find interesting about you. Um, I uh, make miniatures for a hobby. Miniatures of what? Miniature houses, you know. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Miniature dioramas, little scenes. Perfect. You know, started at the, as a uh, pandemic hobby, you know, uh, you know, it's something to do to uh, keep the mind occupied and it's, uh, it's 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 uh, it's still going strong. Perfect. I post the uh, pictures to Instagram. Perfect. Um, if you stopped doing what you're doing today, mm -hmm. uh, what's the second best career path for you? What would you do? Well, I think um, I mean the other thing that I do, but which I didn't mention because most people in the AIB know about it. I think is uh, you know I write uh, science fiction stories and novels and. Uh, you know, I think if I stopped do, uh, uh, doing uh, research today, what I'd do is I'd write full time. I'd, uh, you know, it, it would be, uh, you know, something I'd, I'd have to, uh, I'd have to focus much more on the uh, commercial side of it as it is. I can focus with it, it as a side uh, uh, interest. I can focus more on projects that, uh, you know, are of interest. And, uh, but, uh, you know, I would certainly, uh, I, I, it's something I enjoy doing. It's something that's not a million miles from uh, academia. And so I think I would focus much more on uh, on my writing if I stopped uh, being an academic right now. Sure, but the writing style is different, right? Yeah, the writing style is different. But, um, and, you know, the, the, one of the things that I find very useful about being able to write in both registers, though, is that you can get, uh, you know, the insights work both ways. You know, people... Uh, um, find it uh, amusing that a lot of my science fiction stories are about uh, smart cars and smart technology, but uh, a lot of that's because this is uh, 
what I uh, I spent a decade uh, researching at BMW. And these days, of course, you know, a lot of the uh, innovative research is on smart tech. And so what am I reading? You know, it's uh, uh, digital innovation uh, literature. So all of that goes into the, uh, the, the book. But in the meantime, then I come back out of it and then I start uh, thinking about, uh, you know, more seriously, academically about um, how our identities change in relation to technology and, uh, you know, how technology comes into our lives and uh, what we do with it and the sort of mixed blessing that uh, is uh, intelligent technology. Interesting. Uh, Jagrets, uh, what is one thing you wish you would have done or done differently? Um, it might sound strange, but I actually wish I'd taken a year off after I finished my undergraduate research and went out and worked, you know, uh, maybe uh, may maybe traveled a bit, but, uh, you know, generally taken at least a year out of academia before I committed to a full-time academic career. I mean, I don't regret, you know, the academic career, far from it. Um, but at the same time, when I uh, actually started on uh, my doctoral fieldwork and uh, was uh, encountering uh, people in the city of London and people who, uh, you know, I quite admired, but who had had quite different career paths from myself, I began thinking, you know, uh, maybe I uh, was a little too focused. Maybe I should have explored other career paths before I committed to the one I had. And, uh, you know... To this day, I still recommend to uh, students if uh, I, I'm, I'm director of the PhD program at the moment at uh, Royal Holloway School of Business and Management. And if an undergraduate or a taught master's student comes to me and says, you know, I'm interested in applying to the PhD program, I usually say great. But I also usually say, you know, kind of uh, have you worked? You know, have you been out there in the world? You know, have you, uh, you know, seen what else is out there? And, uh, you know, and if not, you know, then, uh, you know, take a year, go out and do it. You know, the PhD program will still be there when you come back. Don't worry. Um, but, you know, uh, get to know yourself a bit better before uh, you embark on postgraduate study. But the longer they wait, it becomes more difficult to get back to being a student again, isn't it? The longer they wait, yeah. But, uh, you know, a year, two years, um, mm. not so much. And also sometimes, I mean, I've known... Uh, people who've taken uh, a few years out between uh, uh, undergraduate and uh, uh, higher and uh, postgraduate work. And it can actually be helpful because then, particularly in a, a applied field like business and management, because then they've, uh, you know, they, they've had a chance to see how things work. And they've also had a chance to think of a, a good practice-based project. You know, people who come back and say, you know, well, I was interested in, um, you know, I don't know, um, um, you know, diversity in the police force, say, uh, to name a, a subject I've examined a couple of PhDs on. And, you know, having been a policeman, you know, I can say the police force has some issues and I can say them from a position of experience. And But I want to go back and study that scientifically, you know, with research and theory and things, rather than just saying, you know, my impression as a person of color in the police is that uh, the police have a diversity sure. problem. Sure, sorry. Uh, well, for the sake of time, I'm going to switch uh, yeah. to, to research. Um, say uh, you're stranded in a pub, uh, in a local pub. The locals are curious about you, what you do for a living. How do you explain the importance of your research and what you do to people who don't read uh, yeah. scholarly uh, journals? 
Um, usually I have to explain what an anthropologist is first. And uh, I usually actually do it with reference to psychology. I say it's kind of like uh, doing psychology, but on groups of people and organizations. And then, you know, when they're like, well, what's that worth? I'm like, well, you know, uh, groups of people and organizations, they have their problems. They have, uh, you know, they can benefit from learning more about themselves, from being able to see themselves, you know, in a different way. And an anthropologist, you know, uh, in organizations uh, helps uh, organizations do that, helps them get uh, new insights into uh, the organization and how it works that they might not uh, get through uh, more conventional methods. I mean, I mentioned the BMW study, you know, but part of how that came about was that uh, uh, the general, then general manager of the mini plant um, said to me that um, they had, they uh, wanted to improve in a couple of ways. First, they wanted to recruit more women. And secondly, they also wanted to retain people, you know, especially women, but uh, more generally, they were noticing uh, that, you know, they had their lifetime employees, but they also had employees who would, you know, sign up for three months and leave. So they were saying, what's, uh, you know, uh, what's going on? Well, uh, the thing was, they tried their conventional metrics, you know, they tried their exit questionnaires, you know, they tried their stats, you know, they, uh, and they weren't getting any insights. So they said, what uh, we want is somebody who can go and work on the line and tell us what people aren't telling us. And that's what I did, you know. I went on the line and came back and said to them, okay, you know, uh, here are the, uh, you know, I can't say here are 100% the reasons, but here are some insights that I could give you as uh, a uh, worker through a temporary labor agency who is female on uh, what it is that could be improved on the line if you want to do this. And they did. <laughs> well, okay. Uh, but you're yeah. talking about year 2000, right? You're talking yeah. about, um, yeah. about 20 years ago. Okay. Yeah. <clears throat> about uh, omitted variables in IB research, neglected areas of research in IB. Uh, what's your take on it? Uh, what are the things that we should be studying more of or uh, reviving? Well, this is my hobby horse, but you know, I uh, do think that uh, IB uh, could make better use of um, qualitative research methods in all areas, and especially uh, ones that aren't interviews. You know, interviews are useful, but I think they're overused. You know, I think looking at things like uh, linguistic analysis, looking at ethnography, looking at uh, you know, kind of uh, critical incident studies and things like that might. Uh, um, you know, diversify and broaden the, uh, the, the studies that there are. And um, I also think, uh, you know, that uh, um, we need um, perhaps to uh, broaden some of what we think of as, uh, as expatriates, you know, um, there, uh, we uh, focus on uh, expatriates because they're in, uh, in companies, but for instance, is say, uh, a lawyer who um, has fled Syria as a refugee and uh, wants to continue to work as a lawyer, you know, but can't, you know, and it, but is trying to make this the case, you know, how do you classify them? You know, do you call them an expatriate? Do you call them a self-initiated expatriate? If you say, you know, they're a migrant or a refugee, then people are going to say, uh, well, that's not the subject of uh, IB studies, you know, that's migration studies. And, uh, I say, uh, you know, maybe it is, maybe it isn't. You know, there's an IB context right there that, uh, you know, maybe you need to think a little harder about to see, but uh, but it is there. 
Actually, this is interesting because what you're talking about, uh, uh, there's an unnecessary push to put people in silos and yeah. put labels uh, in IB. What is IB? What is not IB? Or yeah. what is not IB? Uh, this is actually quite limiting. Um, about creativity in scholarship, uh, where do creative ideas come from? What does your mind think of uh, in this uh, state of idle curiosity? Uh, about curiosity, about intellectual curiosity, what can you say? Well, I think in some ways, I think that uh, as scholars, as well as inspiration, I think we've also in some ways got uh, an obligation to uh, look at what are the issues of the day. For instance, the most recent project I've been involved with was looking at uh, national culture and dimensions of culture and responses to COVID-19. And I was really glad when this project came along because, uh, you know, without really having a, um, a formal project, you know, I was uh, recording observations, you know, making notes about uh, the British government and uh, what it was doing and why. And because uh, uh, before the COVID happened, I was doing some work on a paper about Brexit and national culture and Brexit. And, uh, you know, so um, uh, it, it kind of dovetailed in there. And I think really, uh, you know, this is um, the we don't necessarily have to be inspired by the headlines, but we also have to be looking around and seeing what are the issues, you know, uh, Chinese investment in Africa, that's a big issue that, uh, you know, we need to study, for instance, um, the um, whole question of what constitutes a developing or a less developed country, that's something else uh, we need to consider, you know, where, um, where are we going with all this technology, you know, what, uh, uh, are the um, moral, political and ethical uh, issues uh, involved. You know, um, you know, blockchain is well out of my uh, my sphere of influence. But again, I see so many, uh, you know, business and issues, uh, you know, just in terms of, uh, you know, how, uh, you know, the uh, the ethics of uh, running a uh, currency like that and the, uh, the sort of culture that it's uh, amassed around it. You know, it's quite different to, uh, you know, conventional financial interests. So I think... Uh, you know what we need to be doing is looking at uh, you know what's 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 new, what's out there, and what's changing our world right now. Interesting. Susan Athy was talking about a couple of years ago. She had a recording at, mm -hmm. at Stanford. So she is talking about the economic system as a ledger and the use of the currency and uh, these currencies as a tool for uh, propelling the societies forward. It will quite uh, point exactly like you're making. Uh, I want to ask you about your perspective because you're in a unique situation about uh, interdisciplinary versus multidisciplinary research mm -hmm. uh, and the, the progress that we have made over the years, uh, yeah. the evolution of the field uh, from where we are, uh, where we were, where we are headed to. What do you think about that? I think, um, you know, I've seen a lot of. Uh, progress in terms of uh, people uh, thinking in more complex ways and approaching problems in more complex ways, particularly to do with culture. You know, um, when uh, I started out, uh, it was, uh, there, there were uh, not so many people, for instance, working in uh, ethnography or taking anthropological uh, insights, but, uh, you know, recent, more, uh, more recently, and, uh, you know, the long, the, the more AIB meetings I go to, the more uh, people I see who are working in those areas and even bringing in uh, things like uh, digital ethnography and auto ethnography that, uh, you know, uh, 
I think when I uh, went to my first AIB meeting in uh, 2004, I think it was, uh, you know, uh, I think most people would have been surprised uh, to consider those part of IB. Also, I think cultural scholarship, you know, not just uh, from a qualitative point of view, but from a quantitative point of view, cultural scholarship is just getting uh, more prominent, more nuanced, more developed. And I think that's all to the good. You know, I think you can't really um, study international business without uh, considering culture uh, sooner or later at some point. And I think the more insights that we have into uh, cultures and how they um, how they work, uh, you know, the uh, the better our uh, insights into uh, business and uh, management in cross-cultural contexts is going to be. Uh, about uh, the PhD program, you mentioned you're the director of the PhD program. Uh, what's the best advice you received when you were going through the program yourself from your mentors? <laughs> Um, <laughs> well, uh, the best advice I got was uh, the, uh, the, the three key skills of an anthropologist are to be able to uh, listen well, to talk well, and take understandable and comprehensive notes while really drunk. <laughs> because an awful lot of anthropology does happen at parties and uh, at <laughs> gatherings and other things and uh, yeah so and you're taking part so if you can't uh, write the write things down appropriately you know no way but in some ways I think one of the best uh, bits of advice I got uh, more seriously was actually as I was uh, as, as I was um, considering where to go after the PhD and uh, uh, you know people said you know business studies you know why not try it and, uh, you know, and I think that was a, a good decision, you know, that uh, if people hadn't said, you know, well, you know, this is a place where anthropologists can go that isn't an anthropology department, uh, maybe I would never have done it. Interesting. So what's the advice that you give to new PhD students or junior, yeah. uh, junior faculty? Uh, listen well, talk well, don't have a slurred speech, and especially <laughs> when you're intoxicated, and take uh, good legible notes. Uh, what else? Well, that's, really? that's what I say to the ones that are, do, are planning on doing ethnography <laughs> or, uh, or something similar. Um, but yeah, in, in more general terms, uh, with uh, PhD students, I would uh, advise them, uh, you know, focus, focus on doing a really good PhD, you know, um, a lot of them feel anxious, you know, they're like, oh, I need to get a good PhD and I also need to get in teaching experience and I also need to get in publications in four-star journals. And I say to them, you know, you're better off focusing and getting a really good PhD because if you do that, the rest will follow. You know, the publications will go to four-star journals if you've got a good PhD and uh, a good relationship with your supervisor and your supervisor's colleagues. And, uh, you know, so you've got good co-authors. Um, the, um, you know, the, the teaching, you know, often that also comes out of the PhD, you know, being able to say, you know, this is my specialty, this is where I can, uh, can go. And, uh, you know, being able to say, uh, you know, I've got a good background in research is a good trade off to, uh, you know, to uh, getting a, a teaching post. Um, I also say to them, you know, kind of play the long game, think long term, you know, don't just kind of go for the first uh, thing that, you know, you uh, looks good, you know, think about where uh, you want to be in uh, 10, 20 years time and uh, go, for, go for there. Which skills are difficult to develop 
uh, to get a good PhD or while getting a good PhD. You're talking about good training, right? Yeah. This is what, so which skills are more difficult to develop and uh, to attain? Uh, in well, for a qualitative researcher, I'd say, uh, you know, developing personal rapport. You know, that's something you really need to do with the people you're working with. Even if uh, you're uh, doing an interview-based paper, you know, uh, you need to uh, be able to uh, develop a uh, good relationship with uh, your interviewees. You need to uh, also develop the sort of sense of judgment, you know, of uh, when you can, uh, you know, uh, when you can take something at face value and when you maybe need to ask a few more questions and uh, how far you can go with that. And those are the sort of skills that I think are really hard to teach. You know, they're uh, stuff that uh, I think mostly comes with experience. You know, because also so when you're done, you know, um, uh, uh, a lot of students, one of the first questions I get asked in any research methods class is, you know, uh, uh, how many interviews is enough? And I say, oh, you know, how long is a piece of string? You know, you could... Uh, do a, a good thesis, uh, you know, with one very, very long interview or series of interviews with one person. Uh, you could do one with 100 interviews, it depends. And part of the, uh, the trick, you know, part of uh, the discipline is really uh, learning to develop your own sense of right, you know, now I've done enough, I've done enough to understand the subject I was studying. And uh, so uh, maybe I'll need to come back, but now I can take a step back and analyze. I had two uh, mentors, two advisors, Odette Shankar and Jay Barney. And when they did executive aid or consulting or uh, or their um, research involved interviews, they actually integrated me as a at least a note taker or a graduate assistant. Yeah. Some I actually learned a lot from that experience. Yeah. Do you integrate your students in your research? Uh, do do you? Uh, do they come with you? How do um, they learn? Yes and no. I mean, uh, sadly, so far, none of my own students have really been able to do that because they've been working in different fields. You know, I, I mentioned uh, police studies. I said two of my students were working in uh, police departments. Others uh, were with Korean business people and so forth. So uh, uh, we weren't able to work together. But uh, when I was in... Uh, uh, Taiwan doing research for uh, my most recent uh, monograph, uh, um, uh, Global Taiwanese. Um, it, they were not my students, but uh, several of the uh, doctoral students at the institute that I was uh, uh, visiting were able to uh, come with me and help uh, with the interviews and, uh, you know, do the tra do translations, do the notes, uh, you know, provide their own insights into the experience we just had, which was just absolutely in invaluable. So, you know, uh, yeah, you know, if uh, anybody is uh, thinking of doing a PhD on, uh, on Taiwan in uh, qualitative areas, please talk to me. <laughs> Uh, well, with all this experience under your belt, uh, there must be some common mistakes that you see across across the board that uh, young scholars, junior faculty mm -hmm. uh, make. Uh, what are some of the things that you say, don't do it, it's, it's just wrong and it would not be beneficial for you? Well, I, I think one of the key ones is uh, don't trust everything, don't take everything at face value. Because uh, again, you know, there can be a um, a tendency. Uh, you know, you see uh, you see a survey or you do an interview and uh, you uh, you don't interrogate it. You know, um, 
somebody uh, you, you conduct an interview and uh, you know somebody says to you 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 say you know what are things like in your organization and they say you know well they're like this and uh, you know it can be tempting you know to say okay right you know and not think that maybe that's not the only perspective on the organization or uh, that maybe yeah, there's some things they can't tell you or don't want to tell you or that uh, they have a version of you know, um, one thing I say to uh, people, uh, you know, ethno young ethnographers, new ethnographers is that, uh, you know, one of the first things, one of the first people that will talk to you in an organization is usually somebody who's planning to leave or retire, you know, and um, this is great because they will tell you lots of things that nobody else in the organization will tell you. Uh, you know, because they, you know, they, they see themselves having nothing to lose you know, they don't have to play the political game if they want to uh, insult somebody. There's going to be no uh, no comeback. But you've also got to remember that that's a version and that there's a motivation going on there that uh, the uh, person is thinking to themselves, you know, I want uh, I'm leaving soon and I want my version on the record. I want somebody writing down my story as I see it. You know, and uh, it's, it's, it's called restitution. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so you got to think and even with people without an obvious axe to grind, you've got to sometimes ask yourself, why are they giving me this interview? What are they gaining from this? You know, I'm doing the study on Taiwan. You know, I would talk to a lot of people who were uh, in um, jobs, you know, uh, working with uh, organizations or chambers of commerce or whatever that had political affiliations. And so I'd have to say, you know, kind of, uh, okay, you know, I'm sure they do want to contribute and uh, help the process of research, but isn't there also an element of, uh, you know, we want our version out there, you know, we want our perspective to look good, you know, we want legitimacy. And then I talk to people from uh, the best way to counteract this, again, as ethnographers, is to talk to lots of different people. And so I would talk to people from other organizations or different backgrounds, and, uh, you know, I'd hear a different version or, or I'd hear things not that weren't even a different version that would make me think, you know, um, I think somebody else's agenda is maybe becoming a bit clearer. And I also don't want to sound cynical. You know, I don't want to sound like I'm saying that nobody gives an interview, uh, you know, for, uh, you know, because they've got an, an axe to grind or an agenda to push. But at the same time, you know, every decision you make is a decision you take for reasons. And so what reasons does the... Do, do, does this person have to talk to you? What reasons do these people have to let you into uh, their organization? You need to think about it. Uh, Fiona, uh, for the sake of time, the last question. Yes, What's the yes. question that I should have asked you about Evans? You know, I've been thinking about that one all week and uh, I still don't actually have an answer. <laughs> Perfect. Um, Thank you so much for your time. Uh, this was very interesting. I learned a lot. I'm sure the audience will agree with me. Thank you for your uh, uh, time and uh, all this input. Thank you. Well, thank you. It's been a pleasure.